Paul Bear Bryant was the legendary football coach for the Alabama Crimson Tide. The Bears, one of the greatest coaches of all time. But at practice, most of the actual coaching was done by his assistants. In fact, the Bear did his coaching from an observation tower that stood high above the field. On occasion, he'd notice a mistake that one of his assistants failed to correct. And he would grab his bullhorn and he would shout down instructions. Well, in a sense, this is what God did in the Old Testament. Often, God's own field assistants, the priests and the Levites and the kings, they would grow corrupt and they would fail to do their job. They would refuse to follow the playbook, the scriptures. And God would have to take up his bullhorn and shout down instructions from on high. The prophets were God's bullhorn. And no one fits that description better than Amos. He was a bold prophet. Amos was the in-your-face prophet. He was loud, like a bullhorn. Amos was a contemporary of Hosea. You remember Hosea from a few weeks ago. They both had a message to the northern kingdom of Israel. Hosea, though, spoke from a broken heart. Amos, in contrast, was tough as nails. Amos was hard-nosed and no-nonsense. He was tell-it-like-it-is. And Amos introduces himself to us here in verse 1. The words of Amos, who was among the sheep breeders of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, this date of the earthquake was probably 756 B.C. So Amos wrote two years beforehand in 758 B.C. And apparently, this was quite a quake. In fact, the book of Zechariah was written 250 years after Amos, yet Zechariah is still talking about this earthquake. Zechariah 14, verse 5. Understand, not every natural disaster is God's judgment. You know, when Hurricane Katrina devastated New Orleans several years ago, some religious leaders came out and they referred to it as God's punishment on the city's wickedness. Now, there is no doubt, the Big Easy is a vile and a wicked place. And at first, quite frankly, I was tempted to draw the same conclusion until I visited. I was in the French Quarter just days after the storm, helping with the relief work. And I noticed that the Quarter and Bourbon Street, particularly the most sinful and shameful sections of the city, they're built on the highest ground. And they had the least impact. You could sort of scratch your head at that. Either God missed, (laughs) or not every disaster is necessarily God's judgment. You know, we do live in a fallen world that's subject to randomness. That's why we should be careful about affixing blame and interpreting causes. Yet, in Amos' day, God did send a message through an earthquake. Josephus described how the earthquake, it was so severe 
that it actually changed and altered the topography around Jerusalem. Amos will predict some fire and brimstone type judgments. It's possible that the earthquake set off lightning storms and prairie fires that God used to fulfill and corroborate Amos' prophecy. Notice how Amos refers to himself in verse 1. Who was among the sheep breeders of Tekoa. Notice Amos didn't hang out with the religious leaders in Jerusalem, but with the sheep breeders in Tekoa. Vocationally and culturally, Amos was from a different neck of the woods. Actually, from the backwoods. Later in chapter 7, verse 14, Amos says to the king, I was no prophet, nor was I a son of a prophet. In other words, I wasn't a professional prophet. I guess you could say Amos was a non-profit organization. Amos wasn't a member of the recognized clergy. He'd never been to Bible college. He had no diploma. Ministry to Amos wasn't a career. It was a calling. It wasn't a profession. It was a passion. It wasn't just a job. It was his joy. You see, Amos wasn't a pro-pastor. He was an amateur. And I love that word amateur. Ever since I discovered what it meant. You know, it's a French word. You know, in in French, amour means love. So amateur literally means for the love of it. Amos served God because he loved God. We need more men like Amos today in our churches. On fire instead of for hire. In chapter 7, Amos tells us what he was not. But he also tells us what he was. But I was a sheep breeder. And a tender of sycamore fruit. Amos was both a rancher and a farmer. Hey, Amos was a country boy. Amos was a prophet who wore jeans and drove a pickup truck. He listened to Trace Atkins and Martina McBride. Climb into his truck, man, to go hunting or mudding. And you might just hear Leonard Skinner's greatest hit CD. Amos, he snacked on moon pies and RC colas. He liked his food dirt grown and deep fried. To Amos, moving up in the world meant climbing a tree. He was just a good old boy from the deep south. Notice verse 1. He was from Tekoa. A country town about 12 miles southeast of Jerusalem. It's set right on the edge of the Judean wilderness. To say you were from Tekoa would be like saying today you're from Walnut Grove. Or from Social Circle. Or from the great town of Between. Tekoa was a hick town. It was a one-stop, single-traffic-like town. Hey, everybody was somebody in Tekoa. Hey, Tekoa was the kind of place where dogs live under the front porch, where funeral homes have neon signs. By the way, you can laugh at these if you like. Where a quarter horse is a ride out in front of the Walmart. <laughs> Where there's a tire swing in everybody's front yard. Where children are named after good dogs. 
where the fifth grade is considered your senior year? Where the stock market has a fence around it? Where fast food is hitting a possum at 65 miles an hour? (laughs) And where on Thanksgiving you have to decide which pet to eat? (laughs) Hey, Amos reminds me of my good friend, Eb Fox. Eb Fox. Pastors the Calvary Chapel in Meridian, Mississippi. And I'm telling you, Eb is a true Southerner. He's as country as country can get. Eb calls himself a cornbread-eating preacher. I really like Eb. He's down to earth. He's genuine. He's honest as the day is long. There's nothing really phony about Eb. You can trust what comes out of his mouth. And that's how I picture the prophet Amos. I'm not sure, though. If Amos was as funny as Eb, this past week Eb sent me a photo, the redneck combination baby chair and teething ring. <laughs> now that there is something you'd see in Tekoa, okay? Amos was just a country boy from down south who'd been called by God to minister to the urban jungles of the northern kingdom. And minister he did with power and with boldness and with frankness and with courage. Amos said it like God saw it. The man was fearless. His approach was simple. Say what God tells you to say and let the chips fall where they may. Amos begins with a roar in verse 2. And he said, the Lord roars from Zion. Notice the voice of God isn't the chirp of a bird or the squeak of a mouse or the purring of a cat. God's voice is like a lion's roar. And notice where God roars from. From Zion or Jerusalem. You see, by the time of Amos, the Hebrew nation had been split in two kingdoms for 160 years. The northern nation worshipped in the cities of Bethel and Dan, yet God's presence and glory remained in Zion, at the temple in Jerusalem. And this created a problem for the northern kings. For if their people went south to worship as God had commanded, they would risk losing those people's loyalty. And so they established a rival religion in their own borders at Dan and at Bethel. They claimed to worship the true God, but in reality, it was their own altar and their own feasts and their own priests and their own sacrifices. God never approved of their rival religion. In fact, he considered it idolatry. You see, you need to catch this. It is important to God not only that you worship him, but that you worship Him the right way. You see, this remains the heart of true worship. Real worship seeks to love God, not just in a way that's convenient for me. You see, if I really love God, I will go out of my way to love Him in the ways that He desires to be loved. That's true love. You know, what if I invited Kathy to go to the Bulldogs game with me? 
Hey, honey, let's go to the dogs game. That wouldn't really prove much in the way of love for Kathy. Because I want to go to the bulldogs game. But what if I said, honey, guess what? I purchased two tickets to the Nutcracker today. Would you like to go with me to the Nutcracker? You know how my wife would interpret that? She would see that as an extravagant demonstration of boundless love on my part. Because she knows I'd rather get a root canal than go to that Nutcracker. Little toy soldiers and fairies jumping all over the place. And the nutcracker drives me nuts. You see, love, though, it's measured. Catch this. Love is measured not by convenient acts, but by costly acts. And the same is true with worship. Do I love God Enough to please him, not just me? That's the question. Well, now, beginning in verse 3, Amos rolls uh, the nations, a series of nations, through the spiritual CAT scan. And we've talked about this, the CT scan. These are the tubes that, that take multiple x-rays. And they deliver a 3D image of what's going on inside the patient. And this is what the minor prophets are all about. They're studying what's going on inside the life of these different nations. These are spiritual CAT scans, these 12 minor prophets. And in the first two chapters of Amos, the prophet puts eight capital cities and their nations on the gurney. He starts with Damascus and the Syrians, then Gaza and the Philistines, Tyre and the Phoenicians go next. Basra and the Edomites. Rabbah and the Ammonites. Kiriath and Moab. And Amos begins his words against each of these nations with a formula. Verse 3, 6, 9, 11, 13, and the first verse of chapter 2, they all begin like this. For three transgressions and for four, I will not turn away my punishment. In baseball lingo, we say three strikes and you're out. Here God's given them four strikes. For three transgressions and for four. It's God's way of saying enough is enough. Hey, this is the straw that has broken the camel's back. I hope you'll notice we know that God judges people. We know that. But did you know that God also judges nations? Indeed, he does. In fact, one day, the United States of America will lie on the gurney. And God will assess and judge our spiritual condition. Now here, in each case, God's grievance against these foreign nations is how they mistreated Israel. And this is how God always judges nations, how they treat or mistreat his people. In Genesis 12, God promised Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. God blesses and favors nations and entities that bless his people, while he curses nations that curse Israel. You know, it's interesting, none of these nations in Amos lists here exist today. When was the last time you had lunch with a Moabite or a Phoenician? Ever worked with a Philistine? You might have come home saying, I can't believe that Philistine I work with. You might have called him a Philistine, but 
He wasn't really a Philistine. I mean, I mean, these folks are no longer a people due to God's judgment. Violence toward the Jews caused their extermination. And I think this still happens in modern times. I think you can make a case. The reason Nazi Germany was defeated, the reason the British Empire has diminished, the, the reason the Soviet Union fell apart, I think can be traced back to their mistreatment of God's people Israel. Now here in Amos 2 verse 4, God shifts gears and he judges a nation a little closer to home. He says to Judah, which was Israel's southern sister, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. And here's God's indictment. Because they have despised the law of the Lord. Oh, they said they loved God. They worshiped God. They they came to church. They just refuse to obey the Lord. And there are folks today just like them who put on the facade. They say they love God. They come to church, but they don't like admitting that there's somebody out there that can tell them what to do. And that's why they despise God's law. God will judge those people. You see, up until now, Amos' target audience, the northern kingdom of Israel, they've been sitting back listening to Amos preach. He'd been preaching right there in Bethel. They've been hearing him. And they've been sitting back smugly, listening and agreeing, probably at times responding with some polite applause, maybe a couple of times offering an amen. Go for it, Amos. Preach it, brother. You go, Amos. I mean, as long as Amos is railing on the neighboring nations, the northern kingdom of Israel, they're happy. In fact, they may have even hooped and hollered a bit when he mentioned Judah. You know, Israel and Judah, they were rivals to each other. Judging Judah would be like railing on tech at a bulldog club meeting. I mean, Israel loved to see Judah lose. But Amos doesn't stop with Judah. Guess who he judges next? Verse 6. For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. And for the rest of his prophecy, the next seven and a half chapters, Amos focuses on God's displeasure with the northern kingdom of Israel. Now here's what Amos has done. He's drawn a big bullseye with these concentric circles. He started with these faraway nations, Syria and the Phoenicians. Then he's gotten closer, Gaza and Edom. And then he's narrowed it down even closer to Judah, Israel's next door neighbor. But finally, he hits, boom, he hits the bullseye, dead center. He says, Israel has sinned against me as well. And Amos has a multitude of reasons to justify God's judgment. They sell their own people as slaves. They mistreat the poor. They indulge in idolatry. Judah despised God's law, but Israel despised and rejected God. In chapter 3, verse 2, God says to both of these Hebrew nations, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Now, you see, here's what the Hebrews were saying. But God, why are you judging us? We're your chosen people. 
Yet that is exactly the reason God was judging them. Because they were his people. They were his chosen people. American Express used to have an ad campaign. Membership has its privileges. Remember that catch line? Well, indeed it does. But if you ring up a bunch of charges on your Amex card, you'll soon discover that membership also has its responsibilities. This is what we try to teach our teenagers, that with privilege comes responsibility. God chose the Hebrews to be his special people, and they enjoyed the privileges, man, but they failed to accept the responsibilities. You see, God expected more from Israel and Judah than from Philistia and Phoenicia. These foreign nations, they had sinned against their own conscience, whereas Israel had sinned against the Scripture, the Word of God. See, they had been given a higher, stricter standard. One Jewish historian, he prayed facetiously, Lord, thank you for choosing us as your chosen people, but how about choosing someone else for a while? Because he understood that with membership also comes responsibilities. And you know, the lessons for us, I think, are very obvious here. As members of the church, as of the body of Christ, we have been blessed with amazing spiritual blessings. And oh, how we enjoy them. But with them, God has raised the bar. Because he wants us to be responsible and to walk in a manner that's worthy of our calling. In ways that glorify God and reflect his holiness and his righteousness. Oh, we enjoy the privileges But do we also accept the responsibilities? And let me get even more personal. You go to a church that teaches you God's word, that teaches you the scriptures. Now, I may fail you in other ways, but I know you are well fed. You come each week and you take and you take, but are you giving back? You enjoy the privileges of being part of this church family. But what about the responsibility to share your talents and to give of your time and even to help us pay a few bills? Hey, we'll be judged if we accept only the privileges and none of the responsibilities. Well, I like Amos chapter 3, verse 3. Great verse. It asks the question, can two walk together Unless they are agreed. You know, for two people to walk together, they they have to have a strong mutual agreement. Is there a shared vision? Is there a common purpose? Are there compatible goals? Is there a mutual respect? Keep Amos 3 verse 3 in your mind when you go to choose a spouse. Or a friend. Or a business partner. Or even a church. Can two really walk together And agree over time, unless there is an agreement between them, a commonality between them. Keep that in mind. Now, the bulk of Amos 3 envisions the judgment that occurs 36 years later. When the Assyrian army drives down into Israel, destroys the capital city of Samaria, and takes the Israelites and scatters them among the nations. In fact, Israel is depicted here as a lamb that has been chewed and dismembered by a lion. In verse 14, God promises to destroy the rival altar at Bethel. It will be a dark day for Israel. I read of an FBI agent who was on special assignment. This was really important. 
So much so that he felt the liberty to take a few shortcuts. Needed to save some time. This was special. This was important. And he avoided that do not enter sign. And he ran past several barricades. He was on a special mission. He was important. But it didn't stop him from driving his government car into six inches of freshly poured concrete. You see, he got caught up in the privileges and he forgot the responsibility. You know, ignore God's warnings if you like. Think the rules don't apply to you if if you're foolish enough. But I'm just warning you, in the end, you're going to find out the hard way that God makes no exceptions. Now, chapter 4 begins with a word to the women of Israel. You women, here's a word to the women of Israel. Reminds me of the Sunday school class where the kids were asked if they knew the story of Adam and Eve. One little girl, she raised her hand and she said, I do. God made the man and then he looked at him and he said, I can do better than that. And so he created the woman. Well, maybe that's the way you've always believed the story. And there could be an element of of truth there, let let me admit. You know, generally speaking, women are stronger morally and deeper spiritually than men. That's certainly the case at my house. I mean, it's more difficult to corrupt a woman. They tend to be pure. This is why when a society's women no longer stand for what's wholesome and righteous, that civilization is in serious decline. And this was the case with the women of Samaria. Israel's women folk, they were cruel and they were greedy and they were selfish Commoners were dying in the streets of thirst and starvation while they sat in their little pit houses drinking their fine wine. You probably heard the expression Jewish princess. It's a young Jewess who lives an extravagant, even luxurious lifestyle funded by her rich daddy. She's stuck up and she's stuck on herself and she's spoiled rotten. This was the Samaritan sisterhood. They were grazing while the poor were dying. And in chapter 4, verse 1, Amos gives them a very unflattering title. He calls them cows of Bashan. You cows of Bashan. What if I got up on Sunday morning and said, you cows of Calvary? Boy, oh boy. A woman is a cow of Bashan if she's always grazing, if she's out there shopping till she drops. She's always grazing and she's never giving. She's never kind and compassionate and generous to others. In verse 2, God promises to break up this party. The barbaric Assyrians, they will put fish hooks in these women in their painted lips and they will lead them away into slavery. A gruesome picture, but something that came true several decades later. In chapter 4, verse 6, God says, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities. Now that sounds like a free trip to the dental hygienist. What can be wrong with that? 
But cleanness of teeth is really another term for famine. In other words, the cities of Israel won't have enough food to even get their teeth dirty. Chapter 4 ends with predictions of drought and pestilence and locusts and disease and fire. And yet after each plague, God says, you have not returned to me. Israel was hard-hearted and hard-headed. They refused to learn. Now in chapter 5, verses 21 through 24, write that down, chapter 5. 5, verse 21 through 24, God makes a strong statement to Israel. And you need to read these verses the day before Christmas and the day before Thanksgiving. It's appropriate that we're dealing with this today. This is good preparation for holidays. Notice God states, I hate, I despise your feast days. And do not savor your sacred assemblies. God, are you saying bah humbug? Is God a Scrooge? Oh no. But you know what? We should consider. It could just be that that God might not enjoy our holidays as much as we do. Remember, they're supposed to be holy days. Not just hollow days. So often we use the holidays as an excuse to party and splurge and shop. They become hollow days rather than holy days. Israel sang praise and festive songs, but their heart was absent from their worship. God isn't impressed with hollow days, hollow performances and empty praise. If you want to love God as He If you want to love God, really love God, you love Him in the way that He wants to be loved. And if that's your desire, read the next verse. God says, let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. How does God want to be loved? Be fair and do right to others. That's how God wants you to love Him. Chapters 5 through 6 are a series of three woes. My friend Skip Heitzig says that when he hears the word woe, he changes its spelling to W-H-O-A. Woe. A woe in Scripture is like a speed bump. It slows us down. It woes us up. It makes us think. Israel here is rushing to judgment. They need to woe. They need to slow down and consider these things. Did you hear about the pastor who owned and trained horses? And when he sold a steed to to someone else, he would explain to the new owner the commands that he had taught the horse. He was a pastor now. And so rather than the giddy up and the woe to get the horse running, he taught it to respond to praise the Lord. And then to get the horse to stop, the command was amen. And so the new owner, he mounted the horse and he shouted, praise the Lord. The horse started to gallop. Every time he said, praise the Lord, the horse picked up speed. He's just riding on this horse as fast as he can. And he looks up and all of a sudden, man, he sees a cliff right in front of him. And so he shouted, whoa, but nothing happened. Whoa, no response. In his panic, he couldn't recall the command. 
He's right up on the edge of the cliff when suddenly it hits him. Amen. The horse comes to a screeching halt, just inches right in front of the precipice. This guy's so, he breathes a sigh of relief and he says, oh, praise the Lord. (laughs) These woes are opportunities to stop and think these things through. Now in chapter 7, Amos has three visions. God judges Israel with a swarm of locusts, but he has mercy and it subsides. He then punishes Israel with these out-of-control brush fires. Again, God has mercy, and they're extinguished. Finally, God drops a plumb line, and he warns Israel not to get out of plumb, or there'll be no mercy. If they can't stay aligned with God's will, if they bend in a crooked direction, God will see to it that they're punished. These visions get the attention of Israel's king at the time, a man named Amaziah. And he agrees to meet with Amos, but not to repent. He wants to run the prophet out of town. He says to him in chapter 7, verse 12, he says, Go, you seer, flee to the land of Judah. There eat bread and there prophesy, but never again prophesy in Bethel. Get out of town, you you prophet. Tries to kick him out of town. Now, I love Amos' response. Remember, this guy's got nothing to lose. He's not even a prophet. It's not his job. He can't lose his salary. He ain't got one. The board can't fire him. He doesn't have a board. They can't undermine his promotion. He's got nowhere to go. Amos pulls no punches. He speaks God's truth. Look what he says to King Amaziah in verse 17. Thus says the Lord... Your wife shall be a harlot in the city. Your sons and daughters shall fall by the sword. Your land shall be divided by survey line. You shall die in a defiled land. And Israel shall surely be led away captive from his own land. Now put that in your pipe and smoke it, big guy. I love Amos. You know, we learn from Amos, it's when you got nothing to lose that you have nothing to fear. In chapter 8, Amos sees a vision of ripened fruit. It means that Israel is ripe for judgment. And he says in verse 2, the end has come upon my people. And here is the sure sign that God has turned a nation over to judgment. Amos says in verse 11 of chapter 8, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, much worse than that kind of famine, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And if you've moved around the country a lot lately, and you've tried to look for churches that teach God's word, you're going to understand Amos' next statement. He says, they shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. There is a famine in the land today, not of food or of drink, but of the teaching of God's word. I spoke to a lady not too long ago. She died just this past week, who had attended church 
her whole life and yet was tragically ignorant of her Bible. And she had been poorly prepared for dying, for meeting her maker, because she didn't know the Scriptures. She had never been taught. She had gone to church her whole life, and all she had heard was little sermonettes for Christianettes. Where are the churches today who are teaching God's Word, who are doing the job? The biblical illiteracy among Christians today is epidemic. I know churches who believe the Bible. They even fight for its inspiration. They just don't teach it. And I can't understand why. In fact, this is why in Amos chapter 9, the Lord shakes the doorposts of the temple. It's as if he grabs the temple and says, why aren't you doing the work? Why aren't you teaching my word? The temple is going to topple, he says. And then in verse 8, God promises to destroy this sinful kingdom, Israel. Yet not all God's people will bite the dust. There will be survivors. God will leave a remnant. God will sift and scatter his people. But one day, they will be restored. The end of Amos 9 is full of hope. And in fact, it sounds like today's edition of the Jerusalem Post. At the end of chapter 9, he talks about plans for rebuilding the temple. He talks about Israel's military superiority over her neighbors. It it talks about the cultivation of this land. It talks about the return of the Jews to Israel. It talks about the rebuilding of their cities. And Amos' predictions are all coming true today. We're going to go to Israel next week and we're going to see the fulfillment of all these prophecies. God, God is fulfilling them for the very first time since Amos spoke them. Almost 2,700 years ago. I love Amos' conclusion. God promises, I will plant them in their land and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them. Now let me close by condensing down and summing up Amos' message. This Amos, famous Amos, he's got a lot to say. But one verse boils it all down. In fact, you should turn there. Chapter 4, verse 12. Chapter 4, verse 12. I I want you to listen to Amos thunder these ominous words. In chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Prepare to meet your God. Israel. Now, let that settle in your mind. Let those words penetrate your heart this morning. For one day, you are going to meet the awesome, majestic, eternal, consuming God. The God upon which no man can look and live. The God that had to cover Moses' eyes to his glory. One day, my friend, You are going to meet that God. You will meet God one day. He is your creator. He is your redeemer. He is your prosecutor. He's your defense attorney. He is your jury. And he will be your judge. He taught you how to live. He has commanded you to obey. And in the end, 
He will check the plumb line to see how you have aligned your life to his will. And C.S. Lewis describes for us what we're all in for the nanosecond after we die. I mean, the, the very split second after you die. Here's what you can expect. And there will be God without disguise. Something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. That will be no time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we have really chosen, whether we realized it or not. You see, now, not then, is the time to prepare. Today, I want to encourage you to wrap your mind around this thought, to leave with this burning in your soul. Prepare to meet your God. J.R. Tolkien, author of Lord of the Rings, he once wrote of God, it does not do to leave a dragon out of your calculations if you live next door to the dragon. If you were next door neighbors with a fire-breathing dragon, it would be a concern. It would affect how you live. When you came, when you went, what you did outside, ignore that dragon and you'd get burned. Well, God is also a fire-breather. He is a force to be considered. And He lives in your neighborhood. He knows where you live. You can't ignore Him. You can't pretend that He doesn't exist. You best factor Him into your plans. You cannot escape God. Amos 5 verse 19 speaks of the day of the Lord. The day of our reckoning. The day that we will meet our maker. It says, it will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. In other words, Amos says you can run from a lion, but you'll get eaten by the bear. There is no escape here. You cannot avoid God's scrutiny. That's why it is best to prepare. Joe Lewis may have been the greatest boxer of all time. And during his reign as champ, he fought a challenger by the name of Billy Kahn. Billy Kahn, man, a little bitty guy, but he was so quick and he was fleet of foot. His strategy was to, to duck and bob and weave and just stay out of his, his opponent's reach. When a reporter asked Lewis if he thought he could beat Kahn, Joe answered, and it's become famous. He says, he can run, but he can't hide. And neither can you hide from the heavy weight of the universe. You should consider the words of Amos today. Prepare to meet your God. Amos was bold. He was in your face. He had nothing to lose. And he was faithful to declare the truth. Because he knew that we all have an appointment that we will keep. One day, you will meet God. <laughs> You really ought to be prepared.